is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, Episode 9. If you claim yourself as an expert, you're not. Uh, it just means that you don't know what you don't know at this point in time. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Scott Caulfield. With me today, Brian Mann, University of Missouri, Assistant Professor of Physical Therapy, Director of Research for the Human Performance Institute, and Director of Performance Research for Athletics. Dr. Mann, glad you could join me today. I'm honored to be here, Scott. And actually appreciate you uh, setting me up for the weekend here. We've got the NSCA Missouri State Clinic coming up tomorrow. Pretty excited about that. Absolutely. Sold out. So I'm uh, pretty excited about that for my first conference. That's outstanding. Yeah. And you are the NSCA Missouri State Director. Got a great lineup looking uh, like tomorrow. Tell us about uh, some of the other people you're bringing in for tomorrow. Well, obviously, we've got you. We've got Eric Anthony, who is a very brilliant young uh, strength coach here uh, with the uh, football staff. Uh, Jay DeMeo coming in from the University of Richmond, who has got a uh, podcast as well and uh, hosts his own clinic every year. He's a phenomenal speaker, phenomenal presenter, does some amazing work up there. Uh, we've got Chad Kirksick coming in from Lindenwood, who is uh, exercise and uh, actually I believe nutrition is his area of research. He was NSCA a Nutrition Researcher of the Year uh, last year, I believe, who also hosts a podcast. Uh, then there's Ron McKeefrey, uh, former strength coach of the year, uh, who hosts a podcast. Also a podcast. Yeah. Battle of the podcast hosts that's tomorrow. A, that's right, man. It, it's going to come down to the wire. <laughs> uh, we've got Garrett Bouchiost, uh, you and myself. Garrett Bouchiost is, uh, do, is, uh, works down at the Human Performance Institute with me and uh, very smart guy and uh, giving him an opportunity to get up and talk in front of some people. Very cool. No, I'm looking forward to it. I was excited about coming out here for it and especially when I saw the other speaker. So that's really cool. Um, we'll have to try and get some other people on the podcast and uh, try and spread the word of what they're doing. So talk a little bit about some of your titles. Tell, tell us a little bit about these roles and the different roles that you're serving here at Mizzou. Well, the uh, assistant professor is pretty uh, pretty straightforward. I teach in the Department of Physical Therapy. I'm not a physical therapist. I don't have a physical therapy background, but they were dumb enough to give me the job, and I was smart enough to take it. Uh, but uh, I do stuff for them for, like, uh, teaching anatomy, uh, kinesiology for the undergraduates. I do some stuff with the actual PT students on strengthening, some very specific areas, like talking about progressive overload and uh, how to actually... Uh, load somebody and, and cause adaptations because that was an area that is um, while all people you know this, this I'll say this comes from my boss that uh, Kyle Gibson he said he hired me because all PTs say they strengthen but they uh, most PTs do a really poor job of strengthening mm. so he wanted to bring me in for that expertise there then with uh, the Human Performance Institute well it says director of research there's not really uh, we're doing a little bit of stuff here and there but there's nothing that's full born research Really what I'm doing is uh, training the trainers how to best coach and uh, how to best deal with the athletes. And we do some small things here and there, which that I think will expand as time goes on. But really, you've got to have a good solid program before you can start, you know, collecting data and, you know, knowing if you found anything. For sure. Uh, 
and then uh, the director of performance research and athletics. Uh, basically, what I do is uh, I help the coaches try and answer questions, just like what I've always done as a part of this staff. Except for now that I'm no longer a strength and conditioning coach, uh, they still allow me to come over with my expertise. And you know, I've picked up some different equipment. Of course, I've got the gym awares that I've had for a, a couple of years now, and I've also picked up some Pasco 1D force plates. And uh, we're looking at different things with analyzing jumps, mid thigh pulls. Uh, and then, you know, whatever ideas pop up, it's like, well, here's a problem. How do we solve it? You know, and that's what uh, what I do with athletics. All right. Cool. Well, and since you kind of touched on the uh, the performance research stuff, this, you know, you mentioned a little bit alluded to the velocity based training. You're you're kind of Mr. Velocity based training. Right. And uh, so I want to I want to know one, like how you got into that. But then also part of that, it's it's very big right now, right? More mm-hmm. and more people are utilizing it. Where do you see that this, uh, you know, usage going? Is it hit its kind of ceiling? Is it just, you know, starting to peak? Are we still climbing with it? Talk a little bit about where you see that okay. world. Uh, well, how I got into it was actually much by accident. So, um, you know, Rick Perry, who was my first boss, so I owe everything to he uh, had all these translated Soviet texts, and one of them was Roman, the training, the management of the weightlifter. Uh, he had a Matveyev, a Medvedev, uh, Yuri Verhoshansky's first. We're talking all the Bud Sharniga, Sport Ivney Press that, I mean, we, if we're completely honest, they were fairly poor translations. You have to read it three or four times in, uh, per sentence to be able to figure it out. And there was all these things that said M slash S in there. I'm like, what in the heck is this M slash S? And then uh, that following March or April, we went out to, we did a little trip. So we would do a staff development trip on spring break. When we weren't working in our weight room, we were in somebody else's weight room checking things out. And we went to Westside Barbell uh, with Louis Simmons and then up to the Cleveland Browns when Buddy Morris, Tom Zelensky, and Rob Phillips were there. So that was a great week for a uh, 21-year-old undergraduate student assistant. Well, Louis had this thing that looked like a Pringles can. And it had a little microcomputer on top. And this Pringles can had a string that attached to the bar. And it was the Tendo unit. And everything that it gave out was M slash S or meters per second. So I looked at Rick and I'm like, because Louie was still trying to figure out what to do with it. And I'm like, Rick, dude, I know exactly what to do with this stuff. And we took it back and we started looking at it. And as it was done for Olympic lifters and kind of noticed that... Uh, some of the things for the Olympic lifters were actually the velocities were lower than what our people could hit. And now I know that it's from basically uh, neuromechanical efficiency, right? You are, the better you are at something, the slower you can go and the heavier loads you can lift. Okay. Like, uh, let's say an athlete, their 1RM happens between 0.15 and 0.19 on a bench press. Um, my, my training partner hits his at 0.08. And we're talking a guy who's been powerlifting for, he's been doing it as long as I have. Uh, so like, you know, 20, golly, it's a long, long time, 25, 30 years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, you know, how we got into it. And it's just evolved from there. Of course, at Missouri, we had a budget and, you know, things took off. Uh, now, where is it going? That's a great question. And, you know, a lot of the units are becoming, uh, it's becoming bigger uh, because the units are more accessible. You know, there's a lot uh, lower cost. Um, 
I think on the training side of things, we have seen, I'm not going to say we've seen everything, but the 1RM prediction, the utilization of uh, individualized velocities, uh, and the use of uh, uh, like the zones and things that I've prescribed for, for years are all you know fantastic and they're solid. I think some areas that we're going to see it expand is I think that uh, as we progress as a profession, uh, if we go down the further, you know, where the research is leading us, we're going to look at special exercises. And I think that it's going to give something for that. Now to say, has it peaked? I think it's never going to have truly peaked and gone away because the effect of the feedback from velocity is so crucial yeah. to uh, enhancing the rate coding uh, that you'll get from a cellular adaptation uh, and really a, a neuromuscular adaptation and how quick the nervous system can recruit that and cause that stimulus over and over again uh, but where I see things going now is that uh, with the use of something like GemAware that is one very accurate and two uh, stores the data for you it is going to allow the coach to do things more with evaluations mm -hmm. so with jumps with loaded jumps with force velocity profiles and uh, with the x-axis correction and being able to move it for different areas uh, it is a um, uh, I, I think that you know just being able to evaluate uh, multiple different things like uh, you look at the one area that I think has been hit on as much and I think will probably uh, increase in the future is stuff like Bert Jacobson did at Oklahoma State and I did with him uh, we had did a dual little area uh, thing that we need to go ahead and publish uh, why we haven't yet it's probably laziness on my part or, or time or you know I'll tell it say it's laziness and everybody else will tell me it's there's no there's only 24 hours a day I keep right. I gotta find that 25th 26th 27th yeah, they'll yeah. catch up but basically where we attached it to the athlete and had them do a sports specific activity okay. and then we measured you know the pre and post on that with the training cycle Good. so I think that those evaluative means are also going to be coming into uh, into effect and now with accelerometers and that they're more affordable and if provided that we get uh, some that have got very accurate algorithms and accurate hardware um, right I think there's going to be more things that we can do uh, from that with the analysis with VBT. Okay. Yeah, no, and we were over in the wrestling weight room this morning and you were just kind of, we were looking at different things and you were talking out loud about, oh, what if I could set this up on this and have guys do this and test that? So I think it makes sense with the practitioners getting better about figuring out how to use it in a sports right. specific way but also like you said the technology being there to make it a piece of equipment that you can now whatever attach to a waist belt or attach to a uh, you know some I've seen some now are coming in medicine balls and diff all different yeah, things like ball, that yeah, yeah so yep. uh, it's definitely exciting um, so if somebody and again you feel free to plug your own work if you want to if somebody is just finding out about VBT what do they really what do you recommend that they either read or learn or look into if this is like something new to them and they need to find out more well, you know, there's uh, there's a few different places to look. Uh, of course, you know, there's there's my book, and I think it's fantastic because if I didn't, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have written it. But uh, developing explosive athletes uh, uh, available through Ultimate Athlete Concepts. But, uh, you know, you don't have to buy the book. There's plenty of articles that I've written out there. Um, then there's the one for the Strength and Conditioning Journal, the use of velocity-based training in uh, American football uh, that outlines the zones and where they came from. Uh, 
there's other stuff out there that uh, you know, and everything that I've done uh, is for teams, uh, and uh, so it deals a lot with averages. And the way that I adjust it is, if we've got a freak, you adjust for the freak. I don't adjust for the dud. Uh, I only adjust for the freak. Okay. Uh, some people think that's a little crappy of me, but to be honest with you, a, uh, a fifth string walk-on who will never see the field court or track is not going to help me, you know, maintain my job. So I end up looking at, you know, if I'm going to change something, I want to change it for the freaks. You know, 70%, 80% of the team are going to fall within the zones. Now, uh, with special exercises, let's go deeper. Now, if I'm dealing with a small team, uh, you know, 5, 10, 12 people, maybe a basketball team, one of the things that I could do is – and that I started doing, and it turns out that Dan Baker, actually, this is a way that he does everybody, but he works in small groups, is uh, find where somebody achieves peak power. He goes off of that load. I go off of that velocity, right? And I go off the velocity because of the, the way that the nervous system is on any given day. That might be too heavy of a load. That might be too light of a load. Uh, and uh, I'll actually even range it out a little bit because I don't like going with one set thing. Uh, we know that from work by, uh, I believe it was Jindaka or it was Jadolf, I mean, I'm pretty sure it was Jindaka. Uh, possibly it was Jadolfsef. But they basically looked at uh, the power and they split it into two parts that they called load velocity and velocity load. Okay. And that were the two components of the power curve, which if you look back at uh, Roman and Verhoshansky, they would always refer to strength speed and speed strength. So I think that instead of just having this one exact number that we need to have a range, some people might, uh, they need power, but they need it a little bit more on the strength side. Some people are already super strong, uh, so they really need to go to the speed side. And uh, so that you can factor that out. And then beyond that, uh, looking at special exercises that you would do the exact same way. Go with perfect form. Uh, After you progress through with whatever special exercise, you're no longer seeing adaptations, you do it explicitly where you're going to go ahead and do that exact same thing with finding the load and velocity at which peak power occur and train there just as you would off the individual velocity profile. Gotcha. Okay. And it makes sense too, right? It's the individualization of training for your athletes, which it's tough, tougher sometimes in a team setting, but Absolutely. ideally what we should be doing or hopefully are doing at some point. Well, everybody. yeah. And I think that that's really just whenever we get up to the advanced level, like if you look at any of the, uh, the stuff that's out there from a lot of the Soviet guys who trained a lot of people that general means work well for a while. Right. So, you know, your freshman, they all are on a general program. You don't need to get individual. You don't need to get specific. It's not till they're juniors and seniors whenever those general means have quit eliciting adaptations for speed and power that you need to individualize. Cool. Now, hopefully, uh, you know, a lot of people are taking that into consideration already, but it definitely makes sense. Um, So I want to go back kind of, you know, we talked about being the NSCA state director. Um, You know, you've spoken at a bunch of different conferences. Kind of how did you get involved volunteering with the NSCA? And as I know, this is a topic that I'm talking about this weekend because you asked me to talk about it. So (laughs) uh, we've been talking about it a lot in our own kind of, you know, talking about our own stories. But tell me about how you got involved and, you know, what where maybe your first experience with it and, you know, your, your your progression. Well, the first way that I got involved was I went to a SIG meeting and they said, does anybody be, want to be on this uh, committee? I'm looking around. I'm like, 
well, I'm a kind of smart guy and I think some things need to be done differently. Sure, I'll do it. And it was against me and four other people and I ended up, or three other people. Uh, so I ended up getting the spot somehow out of there. I, I got voted by my peers to do it. And then that following May, I was thinking, you know, if I want to cause change to happen, I really need to get involved. So it wasn't even May. It was probably like February. I happened to just look up on the site, you know, about trying to figure out involvement and things like this and application to be a speaker. So then I sent that in. And then uh, I happened to see you at Andrew Hootie clinic that may and we started talking and you'd heard my you'd seen my application we're looking at my application when you got that recommendation from somebody else and uh the rest is history you know i've just started speaking at uh, everything that i can uh, and beyond that not just speaking at everything that i can doing everything that i can you know the things that we've done with the sig you know i, I don't want to toot my own horn but whenever we've gone from uh, minimal involvement and few people at the sig meetings to now every time we pack out a room uh uh, and then we've got the, you know, the Facebook group, the stuff that we're doing on trying to bridge the gap with the researchers, uh, which maybe that's all self-serving uh, for the researcher side. But, you know, it's something that, uh, in my opinion, I had said for years that, hey, the research isn't out there. Well, no, it's just I didn't know how to use the Google uh, quite as well, that there's significant amount of research out there. It might not just be done on athletes. It might be done in some other environment, but there's a lot of research there. And then there's a lot of researchers that have done things uh, like we've got Andy Galpin speaking. Uh, I think it's May 2nd or 9th or something like that, uh, doing the Facebook Live on the SIG group. That's awesome. Uh, so then it was just anything that I thought that I could do to help out, I did. The lift certificate and, uh, God, there's probably other things that I'm forgetting right now. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, just trying to rock and roll through all that. Yeah, no, it's awesome to see. And, uh, like, I think I, you know, similarly wanted to – wanted to have more of an impact and that I was a state director as well and you know that was an opportunity to get involved at this grassroots level but I think that's what sets the NSCA apart is you know we have state and regional um, chapters and directors that you know this is a chance for people to get involved and literally start you know having a voice and I know Rama Kifari said it a bunch of times like you know don't complain if you're not willing to do something Absolutely. about it because that's one of my big pet peeves is when I see on social media or something someone talking trash and you know when they're not willing to come out and step up and help so yeah there's what there's what 68 employees at the NSCA serving uh, 25 members and 45,000 certified people yeah. yeah if you want something done you got to do it yourself yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah, that's and how I was raised yeah and it's a great opportunity to be able to be involved and feel like you're making a difference you know because yeah, uh, you are yeah it's exciting to see so we appreciate it and yeah the SIGs now that you guys have the Facebook groups you guys are super active in there you know you've got a core group of people that's always kind of chiming in but it's nice seeing some new people post questions Absolutely. and you know everybody helps each other out so kind of going off that then and and this will be a good one for you because you've been a strength coach you're into all this research stuff you're professional professor now you're doing all this volunteer work for the NCA uh, how do you maintain your work-life balance yeah I don't know <laughs> and your you know, wife might say you don't do yeah, it yeah my <laughs> wife will tell you that I don't at all um, you know but 
the the way that I view work is, um, and this actually, you know, it's starting to take a turn that somewhere that I don't think you expected it to go. I don't have work-life balance, and I don't have work-life balance because of my childhood. Uh, few people know what it's like to have a uh, a small, you know, like a, your continental breakfast size uh, box of cereal and a half a pack of hot dogs have to last for a month. And I do. Uh, few people know what it's like to have your father beat the hell out of you and leave because you've got a birthmark on your face that he's embarrassed about. I do. Uh, you know, there was the movie Cinderella Man. And it was James J. Braddock. And they said, Jim, why are you fighting the way that you are now? You're fighting like a man possessed. And he said, milk. Uh, I work the way that I work because I never want to have to go hungry again. And, uh, you know, it's quite obvious especially after the lunch we just had, <laughs> that uh, I'm never going to go, you know, I, I, I don't go hungry. Uh, I don't want my wife to experience it. I don't want my daughter to experience it. And I damn sure don't want to experience it again. So to say that I've got work-life balance, I really don't. It's something I'm working on to try and do a little bit better of. But, uh, yeah, there there isn't balance. There's work, work, and work. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it's hard for a lot of us, too, at some point. The work we do is so fulfilling, right? And yeah. we help others. It's not really like work a lot of the time. Yeah, right. Um, until you kind of either burn yourself out a little or have a child yeah. or, you know, something else new comes into play and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I need to shift some gears here right. and change some things around. Yeah, and that's something I'm definitely struggling with and working on right now. Yeah. Well. No, man, we appreciate it. You do a great job. Um, so, again, going off of, you know, similar to, you know, you've had some really great mentors and stuff. And how have you kind of built your professional network? I know people reach out to you multiple times a day about VBT stuff now. Mm-hmm. You know, how have you kind of built and maintained these relationships in the field? Well, I could tell you how I did it whenever I was younger. Um, and that was if I wanted to know, if I heard an interview of somebody that said something that I liked uh, or that I wanted to know more on, I called them up and I would have a conversation with them. Uh, I would go and visit a different place, just, you know, basically taking Rick's lead. You know, that's what he did. You know, we read an article. Oh, well, I wonder what, what about this? So we would call them up. Uh, that's how we got in touch with Joe Ken. Uh, that's how we got in touch with, uh, back in the day, uh, Rourke Cutchlow, who's now here at Missouri. He was the director at Iowa State for Olympic sports. He wrote an article and had something from Westside Barbell in there. So we called him and asked him how he's implementing it. Uh, you know, Jeff Madden, whenever he was the head man down at Texas, uh, when they were winning national championships and stuff, you know, I went and visited there. You know, I just would call up somebody uh, and not be afraid to ask them questions. And... Uh, and then you just follow up with them and maintain the relationship. Anytime you're going to be in the area, try and drop in and things like that. Uh, unfortunately, my time has become so uh, thin and spread so thin that uh, I don't take those visits anymore. You know, um, you know fortunately, some people come and visit me. Uh, but then again, whenever I'm out speaking, then I'm going out and talking to the people. I'm not getting to see them in their environment and getting ideas that way. But, you know, at dinner, at the bar, at the conference in between sessions and things like that. That's whenever I I try and do it. But I think there's a lot lost right now with uh, social media uh, because you think that you get everything that somebody says and does. 
No, you don't. Even if you read somebody's book, you don't get it. Like freaking, I've read every book Doc Yesis wrote, right? And then I go out and I visit him and like, holy cow, I did not understand a word you wrote. Right, right. And uh, yeah, it was uh, so, you know, that visiting people and sitting down, getting that face-to-face time, the shaking of the hands, a lot different than using your thumbs on Twitter. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And so that, that it is so easy to still, you know, have that personal interaction or to make site visits, to set stuff up. I mean, you know, people I know are still doing that and people that you know, and you know, if you, you just got to do it, right. It's yeah. too easy like, to just think you can connect on Twitter and maybe have this little ex- exchange or experience and think you really get something out of it. But, uh, to be able to get in and see what people just to visit, right. And vol- uh, sit around and be a fly on the wall in their weight room for that day. Um, no, it's huge. How about, um, we've talked about some of these people, but talk about some of the coaches that uh, had the most influence on you as you were coming up through your career and, you know, where where did you meet them or how did you become involved with them? Well, Rick Perry, it was because I happen to be... Uh you know, kind of telling on myself, but I was hungover, skipping one class to study for another test. <laughs> and uh, I was sitting in front of uh, the Taco Bell that was in the stadium. It was a nice day outside. I was studying, and then you could have, like, basically endless bean burritos and Diet Pepsi to keep you rolling. Apparently, I was a caffeine fiend nice. even back then. <laughs> and uh, one of my friends from high school happened to come up and start talking. And, you know, I actually need to go even further back, so I'll finish this, then I'll start. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Rick walked up and he's like, hey, you're a big dude. Uh, and, and Fitz was like, yeah, man, he just won a national championship in powerlifting. And he's like, oh, uh, you ever heard of Louis Simmons? I do some of his stuff. I'm like, I've read about him on Powerlifting USA. Like, okay, well, you want a job? I can't pay anything. So I said, yeah, let's go. I closed my book and walked up there. And the rest was history. But I really need to go back all the way uh, to Rob Rogers, Kirk Woolfolk, and Russ Ball. They put on a strength conditioning con- clinic in Springfield, Missouri. And I was 13 years old. I hadn't turned 14 yet. It was right before my 14th birthday. And uh, I knew right then and there that this is what I want to do. Nice. You know, the time that, you know, Rob took... uh, took with me there as being this young kid not even a young professional yeah. I'm a kid you know I don't think I even had a chest hair yet <laughs> God knows I didn't have a back hair at that point you know <laughs> but uh, yeah the time that they took with me and I've kept in touch with Rob over the years and thanked him and wanted to punch him in the nuts several times <laughs> uh, you know after you know from, from Rick I went on and I interned under uh, Joe Ken who we both know a very mutual acquaintance and that was uh, an amazing experience of somebody who looks at it as a uh, art rather than a science uh, after him I went to work for Pat Ivy uh, you know and along the way visiting like I'd mentioned Buddy Morris and Thomas Linsky are people that I've kept in constant contact with and I consider uh, I, I consider them mentors and Louis Simmons who you know I, I grew up with in the sport of powerlifting and Rick and I went and visited uh, he was very influential as well and it's not so much the direct stuff from powerlifting even though that was my sport of choice it was more the way that he looked at things and how he uh, he, he took it with that uh, concurrent method of uh, periodization where you're developing multiple traits at the same time uh, you know of course like I said Buddy Morris and Tom Leslinski I mean holy cow you know those guys anytime that you get a chance to uh, to listen sit down with either one of them you walk away with uh, you know tremendous amounts of information uh, 
Yeah, and then moving forward, really another person, two other, three other people that I really would have as major mentors that are almost, uh, that kind of bridged me into uh, the academic side are uh, John Tifo, who's now at KU Med. And a lot of people are like, who's John Tifo? Well, they're never going to have heard the name of John Tifo because he is a obesity researcher that actually started out wanting to do strength and conditioning. And uh, he had a the Essentials of Strength or Sports Performance and Conditioning class on campus. I heard about it. And I'm like... I want to see what he has to say. So I called him up and sat down and started talking with him. And uh, he became somebody that was very much a, a mentor to me for uh, a little bit for programming, a little bit for life. But uh, if it weren't for John Tifo, I wouldn't have been able to get a Ph.D. You know, he really uh, set me in that direction. Uh, there's. Uh, Steve Sayers, who saw me at the first ACSM, and anybody who does power stuff, Sayers Equation, oh, it's yeah. him, his yeah. office. I should have taken you over there today and yeah. introduced you to him. But, uh, you know, he was definitely influential. He was on the APRE paper. Both uh, oh, yeah. John Tifo and, and Steve Sayers were on that. Then, uh, you know, we've got uh, Andy Fry. And Andy Fry was really a huge person for me, knowing that, yeah, this is absolutely what I want to do. I need to get this dual role thing and, and really rock and roll with it because, uh, you know, everything that he did was very practical. Uh, and then I guess I would need to throw Jerry Mayhew in there uh, because if it weren't for Jerry Mayhew, my uh, research career wouldn't be what it is because mm. he helps me to take the stuff that we've done from uh, coaches and uh, from coaching and speaking what some people would call uh, coaches as a different language than, you know, the academic language and translate it into that uh you know jerry mayhew has been huge uh, you know if we want to go into also like the recent times uh it should even be old but uh it wasn't until recently that i met him and got to have a good relationship with dr michael yeses right uh you know he and anatoly bondarchuk have uh really influenced the way that I, I view training now. Uh, and Natalia Verhoshansky, you know, whose dad is Yuri uh, with the plyometrics. And uh, just in the past couple of years, um, some of the things that I used to think were uh, written in stone, I see may not have been absolutely correct or my interpretation of them uh, right. were not you correct. see it through a different lens you now. see it through a different yeah. lens, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because of their help that I've been able to do that. No, I totally know what you mean when you, you either get enough knowledge or you get to a different level and then you see it differently. But no, I'm excited. Uh, actually, next two weeks when I go to CSCCA, I'm going to go spend a couple of days with Ms. Linsky up in Jacksonville. So Fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. So since you talked about it, I'm transitioning to this. You talked about the PhD. So what inspired you? Maybe you talked a little bit about it already. And to get to, to you know, go that route when you're, you're a strength and conditioning coach, you've got a master's degree, you're doing good stuff working with athletes. So why in the world did you decide to get a PhD? And how hard, I want to know, was it, was it that hard? How hard was it to do, you know, as a still being a full-time coach you weren't able to take all this time off and go back right. and just do school alone it turns out that i must be a sadist or masochist or whatever it is i don't know i haven't seen 50 shades of gray so i don't know what it's called but uh, now uh, in, in all reality is that i thought that um i had something to contribute so i had the responsibility to contribute uh and I thought that the best way to do that would be the PhD. And also, just being completely blunt, is that um, there's a guy named Ruben Mendoza, who he was the head strength coach at Ole Miss, and he left Ole Miss to go to Notre Dame. And whenever Charlie Weiss got let go at Notre Dame, obviously he lost his job, and he couldn't find a job for a long time. And it made me realize that, you know, 
just because you've been at all of these big places and have this huge network, that doesn't mean you're always going to have a job. I need to have a, a backup plan. And uh, I just ended up making my backup plan plan A. Uh, you know, and that's basically the way that we went. And I thought that being a college professor, you know, you could you had some great stability, uh, and that uh, you know you would have a uh, you, know, you wouldn't have to be moving around all the time, and that would be a pretty good plan B. Uh, but you know, I just moved things ahead to plan A, and uh, you know, getting a PhD while being a full time strength coach, if you're getting it in the traditional setting, uh, man, I think it's dumb. Uh, I did it, uh, and whenever I say it, almost killed me. I, I you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't say that lightly. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. I've still got health problems today as a result of pushing myself so hard for so long. You know, you're getting up. Uh, I got to be at the weight room between four thirty and four forty-five to be there for the five o'clock meeting for the six o'clock group. Five o'clock setup, five thirty meeting, six o'clock group. Yeah. And this then is AM here you're talking AM. about. <laughs> yeah, and then we're going all the way to groups to a six thirty-seven, you know, six o'clock PM cleanup. Six thirty, grab a bite to eat at seven, go to class till ten or eleven, and then have to study and then get up and do it all over again. The body wasn't meant to only go on four hours of sleep at night yeah. for you know five. Years like I did, yeah. Uh, you know, so there's definitely some repercussions from that. That uh, you know, some people ask, "Is it worth it?" Well, it's like well, you know, we'll see. You know, I, I definitely enjoy where I am. I enjoy what I do. Uh, I enjoy the fact that I've got tremendous stability uh, from the the academic side of things, and I'm still involved. Uh, am I coaching anybody on a day to day basis? No, I'm not. Uh, I miss it. I love coaching, but at the same time, that's what needed to happen uh, because I was gone and am gone so much doing these different things for the industry. And uh, also, I think that by stepping away from the athletics where they don't actually pay me, uh, I can actually push for things that I couldn't push for right. otherwise. You know, that's like let's point. say that if uh, you know there's something that we need to do as an industry that is unpopular by the AD, the AD can't say you're not doing this because you're fired. No, what is he going to say? You're not doing this because I'm going to be mad at you. Well, I make people angry all the time. I'm good at that. (laughs) So that means nothing to me. And how hard was it? How hard, you know, you said you missed the hand, you know, the day-to-day coaching, how hard was it to switch gears or, you know, move from the coaching into being more of a professor full-time? It was, it's completely different yeah. uh, and, and it was very hard and it took me a couple of years to be able to really, you know, hit my stride with it. Uh, and that's with, you know, still coaching too. And that might've been part of it because I still had my hands in it, right. uh, you know, one foot in the water. And this is just my second year of, of not coaching, but uh, you know, cause it's a completely different thing. And if you teach a class for the first time, it's always hard and it's always horrible and it always sucks. It's not till the third or fourth time that you teach it, that you kind of, you hit the flow, you find out how everything needs to be worded to you know for the students to understand it uh and then by it takes that three or four times going through it before you basically get every uh, asked every question that anybody could possibly ask uh and uh there's still some random new ones but at least it's not happening multiple times every class like i've never thought anybody could think of it right right right. but it was uh i miss it it was definitely hard but it's a you you just uh it's also very rewarding too you know because instead of 
me helping out and just taking care of my athletes now that I've kind of got it down uh, you know uh, I'm coaching people who are going to go be coaches right yeah so right. I'm kind of you know, uh, spreading the gospel I guess you know For gospel sure. just meaning good word not meaning a new religious thing I, yeah. I don't yeah, want anybody yeah. to think that uh, <laughs> I know what it means from one respect but if we actually look at the definition the gospel yeah. just means good news or sure. good word sure sure well and I know you know from you know, being at the NSCA headquarters, we still get to train athletes too, but much of our bigger impact is on the ability to help coaches be better at their craft. And yeah. that was like one of the, it's kind of a trade-off. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to be coaching nearly as much as I was at Dartmouth College and wherever else, you know, but it's this is an opportunity to impact a much bigger scale of coaching. Um, so what then might be some... Um, Kind of, are there any like unique challenges for people that, if they're thinking they're they're strength coach and they're thinking, man, Doctor Man's story sounds kind of cool. Uh, is there anything that you wish you knew moving into that, like toward an educational role or unique challenges that you see that people might want to know about? Yeah, you know, one of the unique challenges is that pretty much anywhere you go, you're a square peg in a round hole. Right. There's not that many sports performance uh, majors out there. Uh, and, you know, for those places that do have it, then it, it's a fantastic role to be in. But, uh, you know, nobody really understands uh, what you do and what your profession is and your background, you know. Uh, yeah, so that's that's definitely something that's a unique uh, situation. You know, you're always that square peg in the round hole, you know. Physical therapists they'll say they strengthen, but uh, you know, taking somebody from three reps on a glute bridge to 15 reps on a glute bridge, they're improving endurance and not improving strength. Uh, but they think they know your job. And then, you know, the exercise physiology, a lot of those, well, like here, our exercise, you know, people are like, always assume I'm a professor over in exercise science, exercise phys. Well, I'm not. Uh, I'm not because they're all obesity and aging. And, you know, well, obesity specifically, I, I care nothing for. Uh, you know, even with the aging, I've got some stuff to contribute. You know, like uh, we've got effects of VBT on uh, aging population, uh, paper that's out in the European Journal of Applied Physiology uh, that was uh, fantastic that came for, as a result. Took a long time to get to uh, because, you know, I'm uh, a little hard-headed and open open my mouth without thinking necessarily about how it might come across. But it came through with uh, Dr. Steve Sayers. It probably should have happened about five, six years before it did. Okay. Uh, but the way that I came across, I definitely understand why it took as long as it did <laughs> to uh, come across because sometimes I can be a real jerk whenever I say something. <laughs> Oh, that's all right. That's all right. You just, that's how you learn, right? You yeah. make mistakes and then you realize that you uh, come back around. Okay. I probably shouldn't do it like that next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was one of them. <laughs> what do you think, uh, what do you think one of the biggest reasons people fail in their pursuit of becoming a strength conditioning coach is? Hmm. Well, I think it's a couple fold. I, I think that sometimes people fail because they they don't really want it. They think they want it. They see people standing on the sidelines on game day and they think that that's what they want. Uh, but it, 
they got a real, you know, they find out real quick that uh, 100 hours a weekend season and 60 to 80 hours a week off season, that's a lot of hours, yeah. right? Uh, I think that sometimes people also fail because they lose sight of why they got into it. Uh, you know, I got into it because weightlifting was an anchor to my life. And, uh, you know, if it weren't for that and trying to reach other people with that, I don't think I would have been able to stay in it uh, and, uh, and love it like I do. Uh, I think that, you know, some people aren't able to get into it just because of those things. Then also, um, sometimes it comes down to money because, uh, well, you know, I didn't care what I ate, so sometimes I would live on, you know, EAS bars and chocolate right. shakes, chocolate right. EAS shakes, which is how I got through my internship at Tulsa <laughs> under Pat. But uh, and then the uh, big 100s, uh, working <laughs> yeah. for Joe Ken. I don't know if you remember those. Oh, I think yeah. I chipped yeah, a tooth yeah. on those things. But uh, hopefully, I don't you can get still too- find those if you look in the uh, in the right places. Still, oh, <laughs> what did they expire? Like 2005 or <laughs> yeah. what? It's, uh, you know, those things are like hardtack or something. Uh, but why, you know, I think they fail is also because, like, you know, they, with that money, it's like you, you have to intern, right? And you have to volunteer to get started. Well, if you take time to volunteer, would you be homeless? And for those people, that's not an option. Right. Uh, you know, I was really fortunate because whenever I started working for Rick, uh, a good friend of mine who had been a friend for a long time, his dad owned the house. And he's like, you know, I know Brian's financial situation. Uh, I know he's going to school. It's like, I really don't even want to charge him rent, but let's go 75 bucks a month. Can you swing that? Yes, sir. I can do it. And, uh, you know, if it weren't for other people supporting me, uh, I would not, you know, people would not know the name Brian Mann. You know, so I'm a product of the people who've been around me. Yeah. The path would have looked a lot different. No, and I think we've all got, you know, some sort of people in our life that enable us to to whether it is whether they push us down that path or you know do something that enables us to follow that path i think we've all kind of got a similar person like that um i got a couple more for you but um i wanted to talk about this one because we talked about it earlier today so in your opinion what makes somebody an expert strength and conditioning coach you know, I'm going to be unpopular on this, <laughs> right? Uh, I don't think there's you. An expert is not something that is uh, that you can proclaim. Uh, I people call me an expert in VBT, and I highly disagree with them. Uh, I'm still learning everything that I can. Uh, people call you an expert. If you claim yourself as an expert, you're not. Uh, it just means that you don't know what you don't know at this point in time. Yeah. But people can call you one, and that's okay. But, yeah, I, I, I do not believe that there's any person out there that's an expert truly in anything. Um, you know, And I think that's part of the reason why sometimes I have a problem with uh, academia because uh, I remember there, for a promotion and tenure, you're supposed to write a dossier, right? There's like 100-page paper about what may, why you're an expert in something right. and I fundamentally don't believe that's possible right. you know right. uh, I, I don't believe an expert is something you can call yourself and there's a lot of people on the internet that call themselves right. experts right no and like you said most of the people who are considered experts are the ones that are still seeking out continuous sources of learning and other people to learn from and going to hang out with new people uh, I totally agree um, how about I want to touch on this one uh, related to you know strength and conditioning coaches so put your coach hat back on how do you think strength and conditioning coaches should be evaluated man that is tough 
Uh, that is absolutely tough. Uh, you know, Mark, I agree with a lot of what Mark Watts talks about with, you know, you can't really quantify it, you know, who's who's good and who's bad. Uh, man, you know, how should they be evaluated? I think there's got to be something that comes from the athletes uh, because, you know, if the athletes, you know, the guy named Fred Roll, who is Rick Perry's boss, and Fred's one of those people that is, I've never met, but has had a huge impact on my career. And he said a well-coached program will beat a well-written program any day of the week, yeah. right? And uh, so there, I think that some of the evaluation process has got to come from the buy-in of the athletes. Some of the evaluation process has got to come from the uh, relationships with coaches because even if you have a perfect program but you can't have a conversation with the coach, uh, you suck. Yeah. You know, you're, you're failing at life. Uh, and then I think that, you know, if we wanted to have some sort of quantification, I don't think that it would be as, uh, you know, wins and losses because you can't account for the other team. What I think that we could do is look at maybe some different batteries of tests to see, does, you know, how much is the athlete improving in a long longitudinal manner? Yeah. You know, are we able to keep uh, evaluating with that? But the, even that is tough right. because we look at, uh, you look at the uh, 100 meter, right? And whenever they would consider it's either 0.01 or 0.001, they yeah. consider that if you improve that in a season and a whole year, that's a huge improvement, yeah. Yeah. Right? right? So, you know, it, the, if somebody's at the genetic potential, you know, how much can you actually yeah. elicit that, that improvement? So yeah. that's, that's even tough. You know, the evaluation is just, um, I'm not smart enough to, to know how to do it. Right, right. Well, and I don't ask that question because I have an answer to it either, but I like to hear everybody's different, you know, obviously two cents on it because it's something that we hope to try and, you know, get a consensus on. Maybe that's a good one for our college SIG uh, discussions too, you know. Yeah. Um, all right, we're going to wrap up with uh, my three go-to questions that uh, I ask everybody that hopefully kind of separates this podcast a little bit from everyone else. But first one, if you had a magic wand and you could eliminate any coaching practice, which would it be? It would be the beating the chest and egotistical, uh, you know, nature of a lot of it. And I think that that's what has held us back as a profession. Uh, I think that the the arguments and the fights and the, you know, uh, people having to prove their masculinity, I think, uh, and through that, I mean, by tearing down other programs and not sitting down and having conversations and listening to what the other person thinks, I think that that is, uh, that's what I would get rid of in a heartbeat. Yeah. And what's that? There's a great book out right now, Ego is the Enemy, that, uh, talks about that being huge for you know everybody not just in related to our profession uh okay tasks with starting a new strength and conditioning program you have a limited budget so you only pick three items what are you going to start with so is it racking a platform two or is that one <laughs> uh i've been pretty lenient with these so okay. we'll give you one for that so i'll have a rack on the platform uh can i have a barbell and plates sure and bands Okay. And I think that between uh, those three things, you can pretty much get anything done. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I'm, some people will probably say dumbbells or kettlebells or things like that. And it's like, well, you know what, man, I can rig some stuff up. Uh, you know, I can do lateral raises with 25-pound plates. Yep. You know, I yep. can do a lot of different things with, with those. Uh, but and then I can also progressively overload it as intensely as I want. I can do a lot of unilateral work with bands, yep. uh, you know, like yep. lat pull-downs. Well, screw it. I can throw that rat, that band up across the top and I can pull it down. Yep. Is it just like a lap pull down? No, it gets a lot harder at the bottom whenever yep. I'm 
a little bit weaker, but who cares? I'm getting something done. Yep. A lot of different uses for all those things. No, that's a good one. All right. Final one. Name three people, living, dead, or fictional characters that you'd like to have dinner or take out to drinks. Ooh, wait, taking out for <laughs> drinks. I didn't know that one was coming. <laughs> well, I think, of course, I, I would... Uh, off the, the the wall would probably be like Socrates, right? I mean, the guy started scientific method. Uh, we still look at his students' things, you know, Aristotle and Plato. Uh, I mean, shoot, Plato's Republic is a, a you know written two thousand years ago, seventeen hundred over seventeen hundred years before the. Uh, well, I don't actually remember when Plato was around, but it was a long time before the U.S. government yeah. sat down to write the uh, Constitution, and right. a lot of it was on there. Um, then uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I love this guy, man. You know, he uh, can uh, make scientific things make sense, and yeah. they're funny. And to be honest with you, a lot of my ideas, I'm not going to say necessarily come from him, but they come from scientists in other their other fields. Shoot, that affects academic stress on illness and injuries. Yeah. The reason why I was able to get that study done and look at it the way that I did was because I was drinking with two neuroscientists and a, and a cardiac surgeon. You know, uh, they said something and an idea popped into my head and I looked at it. And yeah, I mean, that guy's freaking. I love that show that he had on. I think it got canceled. Uh, yeah. I can't even remember the name of it. Universe, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and then the third, uh, I would have to say probably Yuri Verhoshansky, uh, because you know Yuri is uh, very influential in our field, uh, and part of me wants to know what did all the stuff that we messed up is because yeah, I've learned that right. there's some things, you know, within plyometrics and other areas that, you know, uh, words. Either A, there isn't a word in English for the word in Russian or, you know, when you, anytime you have, I mean, you've spoken overseas too, you know, things right, lost right. in translation oh, yeah. is not right. just a thing. It right. is absolutely true. It is all there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, those are great, man. I appreciate it. Well, looking forward to the state clinic tomorrow. Thanks again for being on the podcast. We appreciate your insight and experience. My pleasure. Thank you. This was the NSCA's coaching podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.